Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock and along with my tenured through what could only have been a loophole friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the tenure process, what it is, why it exists, how we see it, and some thoughts that might be helpful on the journey, fully realizing that institutions and fields are different, so your mileage may vary. Along the way, we also mention Fermat's Theorem, 10-Year, The Wizard, Flying Monkeys, The Child Catcher, Water on Rocks, Fat Old Bald Men, Intellectual Punch in the Face, Charlie Brown Fails Tenure, 70% of Zero, Cosmic Cantina, Research Quality as a Latent Variable, Multi-Inter-Transdisciplinary Research, Throwing Grants on the Fire, Marlo Thomas, She's Back, and Caveat Emptor. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So one bit of professional development is be careful who you date in grad school. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because the odds are pretty good at some point you're both going to have to find jobs together. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Tell us, a wise one, from whence cometh this morsel? Hypothetically, I might have started dating a fellow lab mate when I was in grad school. We got married mm-hmm. and then proceeded to try to find two academic jobs. And then once we were able to do that, jointly went through the tenure process. Because as you know, marriage isn't challenging enough <laughs> to kindle and foster and support. You mm-hmm. really need to wrap it <laughs> in the insanity of academia. <laughs> I was a couple of years older than my wife which means that I came up for tenure first. Mm-hmm. And my chair pulled me in as I was getting close, and he said, look, you're in good shape. You got pubs, you got grants. I'm a little worried, though, because you don't have any sole-authored papers. You only have co-authored papers. I was first on a bunch of them, but they were mm-hmm. collaborative. Mm-hmm. And he was worried that this might reflect that I don't have an independent program of research. And that, of course, shot the fear of God into me. Mm-hmm. But also he pointed this out while I was preparing my <laughs> dossier, which makes it of somewhat limited, limited. use <laughs> in <Yeah>. preparing. <laughs> Gee, thanks. I was fortunate and got tenured. And then a couple years later, my wife came up. Mm-hmm. As she was preparing her dossier, the same chair pulled her into the office and said, look, I'm a little worried. Of course, you have all the pubs, grants, everything you need to do. But you have a string of sole-authored papers, but very few collaborative papers, mm-hmm. and I'm worried about this. And over dinner that night, we both decided, screw you all, mm-hmm. we quit, <laughs> we're done. Someone whom we both know, who shall remain nameless, wound up somehow getting a book that was yours, or at least that you had laid hands on while you were in graduate school. And you had written a very sweet note on a computer punch card to Andrea. And that was still in that book. And person told me the content of it, roughly. Turns out you were a pretty nice guy. (laughs) That's fun. I did not know that. And I'm glad the story went that direction because Mm -hmm. just a year or two ago, Mm-hmm. I had a book and I asked my administrative assistant to scan a chapter out for a class and <laughs> she scanned it in and I sent it out to the class and then we met and there was some tittering and and <laughs> giggling as we went in and I pulled it up on the screen in front of the room and I was paging down and in my handwriting, mm-hmm. in the margin, it said no I had forgotten that I had Uh written that maybe 20 years ago. (laughs) Insightful commentary. It was an insightful (laughs) commentary about the novelty of Uh the statement made in the paragraph. But yeah, so the general rule is thumb through your articles and books before you share them. The mathematician Fermat wrote a whole theorem in the margin that was lost in time, but we... (laughs) You, you just write, no f***ing <laughs> You're quite a scholar, my friend. Andrea and I decided that the sole reason we wanted to get on the other side of tenure, whether it was successful or not, mm-hmm. was that we could talk about something else over dinner. <laughs> Absolutely. 
This is throwing water on a rock, and it just seeps into every crack, every crevice, every decision, every paper that you get involved with. Every person you talk to at a conference, is it's this tinnitus that just mm-hmm. rings in the background is how is this going to impact tenure? How is this going to impact tenure? And mm-hmm. we just wanted it to end. Tenure has so much surrounding it, much that is formal, much that is sort of cultural. What you said about talking about it at dinner is just so accurate. This is consuming. Everything you do is looked at through the lens of this specter, and you feel it each day clicking closer, clicking closer. And maybe it would be a good thing for us to try and go through this thing called tenure, what it is, why it exists, whether or not it's evil, and share some thoughts that we have now that we are way on the other side. How about that? My parents were both high school teachers, and they, back in the day, talked about tenure, but Mm -hmm. I was a kid. Now, we've established on (laughs) earlier episodes, I am not the sharpest pencil in the box. C student. (laughs) I thought tenure was, if you worked for 10 years, then Mm. you got a permanent job. Makes total sense. Now, 30 years later... I'm thinking that's not such a bad system. (laughs) About right. About right. (laughs) Right? It's just set all of this crap aside and tenure Uh is, if you don't get fired in a decade, it's yours. (laughs) Very briefly, what tenure is, is an indefinite appointment or a permanent faculty appointment that Mm -hmm. can only be terminated either for cause or for what is sometimes called extraordinary circumstances. What is the point? Ostensibly to protect academic freedom, that you cannot be fired for going against political views, religious views, special interests, government control, things like that. We could have an entire season of episodes Mm -hmm. talking about what is academic freedom and does that actually exist. Yeah. Historically, it goes back into the 1500s. It was formalized as we think about it today in 1940. There is a 1940 statement of principles on academic freedom and tenure that lays out what we think about now as a tenured position. Although it benefits the individual unambiguously, the motivation is it serves society. Yes. This allows an environment for all of us to pursue research and teaching and ideas and dialogue without fear of recrimination from higher bodies. Yes, that this is an intellectual marketplace. We can, in theory, disagree on things, work on topics that might be difficult, challenging, and that society ultimately benefits from whatever we are trying to accomplish here. Today, we'll talk about what we might think about as a rank-and-file faculty member, that you're at a university or a college, you're hired as what's called an assistant professor. The typical trajectory is a young academic comes in as an assistant professor and is given a three-year contract. You are reviewed in your third year. If you pass third-year review, then you are granted a four-year contract. You are still an assistant professor. You are untenured. You are again reviewed in your third year, which now is your sixth year in. If you navigate the promotion process, you are promoted to what's called associate professor, and you have tenure, and then you begin your indefinite contract. If you do not successfully navigate the tenure process, you have a fourth year of your contract to get another job, and then your position is terminated. It's somewhat similar here. We have the three-year contract at my university. The third-year review is conducted entirely at the department level. After that, the contract that is offered here, it's another three-year, but there is that extra year to get a job if things don't go well. When you and I talk, we will often pair tenure and promotion to the rank of associate professor because they very often now come together. Historically, they haven't necessarily come together. You might be an associate professor, but you still have to work toward tenure. So it's more and more common that those are paired, but it is not always the case. And we're only speaking within the United States. Outside the United States, there are different systems with regard to tenure and promotion, different systems with regard to ranking. So we are a bit focused on how things work around us right now. And 
around us within a research-oriented university. Correct. One of the punchlines in our conversation today is there's massive institution-to-institution variability in Mm -hmm. how all of this is set up. If you're on your treadmill and saying, that's not true, no, we don't mean to say this is what holds across everywhere. These are broad strokes, and they're teaching colleges that have very different kinds of criteria. We're really talking from the perspective of a U.S. Mm research-oriented university. Do you want to turn and start talking about the different dimensions of evaluation? How would you like to advance here? Maybe what we could do is to talk about, well, what is the review process itself? Yeah. What do you submit? How is it evaluated? A little bit of pulling back the curtain at Mm -hmm. the Wizard of Oz, because there's very much a Dorothy and the Wizard kind of element Mm -hmm. to it. Please, sir. We've done what you told us. And it also is very much where you pull back the curtain and there's a balding, fat old guy at an organ. You'll kind of see that as well in the 10-year review process. There was an organ? He had something where he made all the fire and the big head. I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. I don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. Talk, I was like emotionally scarred by that Uh movie. Yeah. I still have nightmares about the flying monkeys. Take your army to the haunted forest and bring me that girl and her dog. Well, who doesn't? Oh my god, it's traumatizing. That and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with the child Uh catcher. Children, where are you? I didn't leave the house for like three years. Let's talk about what is the review process, mechanically how do we go through this, what is behind the scenes, and then to that maybe we could add some tips and recommendations we might have having been in this gig for a very long time. At Maryland, there are many, many levels to the review, maybe more than are customary at other universities. At our institution, there is a formal review that occurs at the department level, and so the department votes on you, and then the department chair here separately votes on you. Then the case goes to the college level here, then it goes to the dean for a separate evaluation. And then after it makes it out of the college, it goes to a campus-level committee. Then that gets advanced to the provost, and then finally it gets advanced to the president. So we have a seven-level review process. That's a lot of flaming hoops to jump through. What about it, Carolina? I really like how Carolina has their setup. I think it's very thoughtful. I think it's Mm -hmm. in the interest of the candidate being reviewed. I think that there are air traps built in so that if something is moving awry, that higher level committees can reevaluate. But we have a committee of four faculty members that do what I think about as the deep dive. Read the materials, read the papers, solicit letters, read the letters, all of that, and then write Mm -hmm. a very detailed report to the personnel committee. We then make a recommendation to the chair, who's then off to the races. You said something that I would just like to underscore, and that is that it's very thoughtfully done. I know when I was an assistant professor, it was this crazy mystery about what goes on. It might as well have been the old balding guy with an organ behind him. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. It's just not well understood by people who are untenured. And because it's not well understood, it's feared and maybe even regarded as capricious. And in my experience, it is anything but capricious. I have been on every level of the committees that we have here. And I will tell you at every single level, every person on every committee is interested in trying to understand the best that this candidate has to offer. They are invested in you. They generally are very, very interested in your success. And they should be setting you up for that success. And the committees along the way are doing everything they can to try to understand in what ways you have been successful. That's my little motivational take on it. There are cultural differences across institutions. And so Mm -hmm. you may be in a department where you don't feel like there's that level of support. And I appreciate that and I recognize that. But I would say the vast majority of institutions are trying to help their faculty succeed. And one thing I love about Carolina is we have a very long culture of bringing in a system professors with the sole intent of having them be tenured. Mm -hmm. It's not a weed out. Here's a dime. Call your mother. 
to live this serious doubt about your becoming a lawyer. We make a hire with the intent of tenuring that individual. One thing I feel very strongly about is that if you're in a supportive department with an effective leadership structure, there should be no surprises in mm -hmm. any aspect of this. You should be mentored every year. You should have a committee of your colleagues where you go out to lunch, you talk about what decisions are you facing, what projects are you working on, that third year review should be a dry run for tenure. You meet with your chair. This is what you're doing well. Here is what you have to fix. It's the old joke of don't be anxious in a turbulent flight because it's too freaking late. You might as well order another drink and just ride it out. You need to be anxious, not when you're preparing your dossier, because you've already flown into the thunderstorm. Where you should be anxious is in your second and your third and your fourth year when you can actually do something about it. You should have the guidance and support of your colleagues that the outcome of your tenure review is absolutely known before you even submit your materials. This notion of, oh, I wonder what's going to happen, to me reflects poor leadership at the highest levels in your institution. Absolutely. It is our job to make sure that we help foster a culture that is supportive, that you understand what the criteria are as per the university when you arrive, that those criteria are better and better understood with each passing year, that there are people who are kindly looking over your shoulder, helping to create the opportunities that you need to succeed, maybe themselves take on a little bit of extra responsibility to create space for you to succeed, providing you guidance, setting you up with people around the institution. There really should be no surprises. I completely agree with that. And not everyone who is hired as an assistant professor should be tenured. The system needs to work where occasionally a tenure review process leads to dismissal. And I think one of the sad truths is this entire process has become embedded and confounded as a personal issue, mm -hmm. is that you're not worthy, you're not smart enough, you're not creative enough, you're not productive enough to be with us. And mm -hmm. I really view it much more as a goodness of fit issue. In several promotion reviews that have led to dismissal, I have felt that maybe that was a good decision because that position was not an ideal fit for how mm -hmm. the individual wanted to navigate that academic space. So I think the reality is, is people don't get tenured and there are reasons for that. I agree. It is my strong preference to sense that trajectory as early as possible and help that individual maybe to make other decisions along the way. But ultimately, if that's not the right fit, that should be the outcome of the process. Could I go ahead and give you an intellectual punch in the face? <laughs> Please. So let's start to drill in. Mm -hmm. I actually looked up last night and pulled mm -hmm. up our policies on faculty personnel actions. I'm not a big Ooh. one for reading policies. And so I'm like, Oh, look at that. Oh, we do huh. have a definition of that. Uh, huh. How about that? Let's start with singularly the most mm -hmm. vexing and frustrating aspect of this entire process. And then I'm going to argue that it is simultaneously the greatest strength. May I? Oh, would you? The standards that this department applies to the evaluation of candidates are qualitative and cannot be expressed quantitatively. Therefore, they inescapably entail subjective judgment. As a result, it is not possible to reduce the evaluation of academic personnel to a purely objective enumeration of expected accomplishments within a specific period of time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now if I put on my assistant professor ears, I hear, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> we will pull stuff out of our butts. That was one of my favorite Charlie Brown special episodes. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was Charlie Brown fails tenure. Studying? Oh, yes, ma'am. You're absolutely right. We should have been studying. Right. <laughs> that was one of their less popular ones. That is such an easy thing to get anxious about. And it's a very natural thing to get anxious about when you are an untenured person. You're like, what the hell? 
they are telling me that they can't tell me what I need to do to be successful. That is about the only way to read it when you're on the other side of it. Not only are they not going to tell us what the secret sauce is, but Mm -hmm. they're going to chastise us if we ask for what the secret sauce (laughs) is. That's the beauty of it. Uh How can we possibly increase your anxiety beyond what it already is? I know. I'll make you feel bad about asking what the criteria are. As if there are criteria. Well, okay. Right? Do yeah, you it's see not, the wonderful it, vortex we're in? It's not like there are three people who each know a part of the secret <laughs> and they have to fly on different airplanes. I sincerely believe this very issue is one of the greatest strengths of the entire process because what it does is embraces individual variability in how you conduct science and how you contribute to the field. And I think it would be a travesty if you said, we require three first author publications in peer-reviewed journals that have an impact factor of 1.5 or higher over a four-year period. I think that would be a travesty for the field. And what it means is you can present yourself in your accomplishments and your contributions as you choose to contribute to the field and you don't do your work to fit a fixed form equation. I have seen the tenure promotion criteria for many, many different universities. And I have seen universities that have point systems. That if you are first author on an article, you get X points. If you are second author, you get X points. It's a very elaborate system that incredibly well-meaning people intended to do. But I really don't think it's viable. I think it almost communicates the wrong message because I have been, for example, second author on a paper where I think it is some of the greatest work I have done. Personally, I think it is a mistake to try to nail it down as frustrating as that is. And adding one more to what you just said about the second author and one that I think is even more important is, are you building a system that undermines the motivation to provide graduate students with publication opportunities? So Mm -hmm. if you're second author, but your student is first Mm -hmm. author... If you know somebody is throwing beans in a pile that they're going to weigh in a couple of years to see if you're going to be fired or not, what is your motivation as a junior person to support your graduate students or your postdocs? So the troika across almost all universities is research, teaching, and service. Mm -hmm. Different universities will differentially weight these. I want to gouge my eyes out with a spoon every faculty meeting where we have every three years that discusses what numerical weights should we put on those. Mm -hmm. And we tend to fall on 0.6 for research, 0.3 for teaching, and 0.1 for service. Now, this is not tenure review. This is merit review, which is how are we going to divide the zero dollars zero, yeah. that are available for raises? I want more zeros. I want more. I want 70% of zero, please. Those weights are not incorporated into the tenure review, but it does give you a relative sense. If you're in a Research One university, you should not be surprised that research is a priority, followed by teaching, followed by service. What is it at Maryland? Those are the big three. There is a move toward including contributions to the university's mission around diversity and inclusion. These things evolve, right, as they should. Let's briefly talk about what a dossier looks like that goes in, and then we can start picking away at how is that evaluated. At least at Carolina, it has a curriculum vita, a research, teaching, and service statement, teaching reviews. Then in addition to that, we have a teaching observation. And then one of the most important parts of this entire process are external letters. Carolina, the candidate puts in a list of names of potential letter writers. From that list, two are chosen. The committee chooses two of their own. And there are four external letters submitted that offer an evaluation of the research component of the candidate. What you described is almost identical here at the University of Maryland, although we have six letters in total. That's a challenging thing in and of itself, right? Because the candidate 
doesn't want to submit so big a list that the committee can't come up with somebody right. else who's in the field. There are restrictions in terms of who you can suggest with regard to collaborators and other things. If you have collaborated with some of the leaders in the field and then you're not allowed to ask them their perception of your work, that does feel a bit ironic. I would say there's a bit of a dance around letter writers. But as you say, ultimately you have no control over what is going to come in. You and I both have been letter writers for gazillion, I think, cases by now at, at all levels. At Carolina, do you ask external letter writers whether or not this person would make tenure and promotion at your institution? Yes. The vast majority of invitations I have to review explicitly say, would this individual be tenured at your institution? Going back to who do you choose from the letter writers, that is a little tricky because one of the things is you try to select reviewers from sister institutions. We do not. We explicitly do not. We tell the people we are not asking if this individual would be tenured and promoted at your institution. We used to. But now we ask from your external perception, does it appear that this individual has met our standards here at the University of Maryland? These are meant to be external eyes, unbiased external eyes. Now, that doesn't keep letter writers from doing whatever the hell they want, as in not reading what we ask them and just doing what they've always done. Given that I've written letters for you mm -hmm. and I've put that recommendation in, mm -hmm. it pretty clearly reflects I don't read all those policies you send. Nope, I see your letters and I go, yeah, okay, yeah, he's just, <laughs> that's Patrick. <laughs> I've always felt awkward about it because of what you just said. They're not being tenured at Carolina. We may have a different culture. We may have different priorities. We may emphasize things differently. I don't feel comfortable about making that recommendation, but it doesn't keep me up at night because it's just expressed as an opinion. Now, the nice thing is I couldn't even guess how many of these letters I've written myself. Let's just put it in the boatload category. Yep. Rarely do I write one that recommends against tenure. If the system is working, I am able to say I would absolutely support tenure at our institution. And a couple of times I've added, if this review case is not successful for this individual, I would begin internal processes to try to bring them to Carolina. What a lovely thing to say. I have read a number of your letters that you write, and I have obviously read probably hundreds of letters by now that have been written by other scholars. I would like to tell people out there who are looking ahead to this process that letter writers are far and away very thoughtful in this process. They take your career very seriously. It's part of what it means to be in this community. I feel the weight of this task, right? When someone reaches out to me and says, we would like you to evaluate this person's credentials for promotion and tenure, I sort of sigh because I know what that symbolizes. I take this process very seriously as a letter writer, and I know you do too. I do, and I actually hate writing these letters. And it's not mm -hmm. because of the amount of time. It's not that I don't mm -hmm. think this is one of the most important things that we do. I embrace all of that. I know the weight of your language in these review committees. Mm -hmm. We have had an hour discussion in a personnel committee meeting over one line in a yeah. letter. Let's talk about then what is the evaluation for research? So it is research productivity. Right, so here's another wonderfully useless statement. So I'll go back to my policies. A demonstrated to and achievement of research excellence is required for consideration for tenure and promotion. Thanks, guys. <laughs> uh -huh. Super helpful. The vagueness is actually what gives us room to move, room to be able to define it in a way that is specific to our field. Do you want things defined for our field of quant methods to be exactly the way they're defined for English, exactly the way they're defined for dance? So the idea is that you are allowed to define what is excellence. 
That just means that it is defined by each field. So what is research excellence? It drives me a little crazy. You told me in the holiday episode that you could have the airing of grievances and that lasted you till October. Yeah. It's January 12th and I'm just, I'm feeling the need to do this weekly. That can be a feature. Oh, all the (laughs) university cares about is publications. All they do is count publications. Is count, count, count. Have you published? Have you published? Have Yeah, no. It's about (laughs) publications. That is how we disseminate our science. That is how we contribute to the discipline. It's not the Mm -hmm. only way we do that, but it drives me insane where somebody says, oh, it's all just about counting. How many pubs do you have? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Our coin of the realm are peer-reviewed publications in which we make a novel and unique contribution to the scientific community that has gone through an established process of evaluation. And that by far is the most important component of research excellence. I absolutely agree. This is why we are here. We are here to create knowledge. We are here to share that knowledge. This is the cycle. This is what we signed up for. So when a university says, so tell us about your sharing of knowledge, we shouldn't get all pissy about it. This is the deal. I will say I take a tremendous amount of joy in this deal. Yes, I felt a lot of pressure when I was an assistant professor, but I will tell you that fairly quickly converted over to, I have so many ideas, I don't know where I'm going to find the time to get to do all of these things. People should be trained in graduate school to understand this particular rhythm when they arrive at an institution. The institution should help them to get into that particular rhythm. I just don't think there are really any surprises here. And it kind of surprises me how often I hear people who are surprised by this. One of my favorite kinds of support meetings I have with junior faculty is where I'm able to say over burritos at Cosmic Cantina, just keep doing what you're doing. We hired you doing this and just keep being you. You know what's interesting about this whole process? Let's approach it from a latent variable perspective. Okay, research excellence. That's our construct. We want an individual to have a high degree of research excellence. Well, what are our observable indicators of that? Well, we have publications. We have quality of journal. We have quantity of journal. We have things like the H-index. Remember, an H-index is the number of papers you have that have at least that many citations. So if you have an H-index of 10, you have 10 papers that have at least 10 citations. Flawed? Yeah, absolutely. H-index is kind of silly. But does a numerical value convey some information? Yeah, it does. Out there in the world, there are even published criteria of, well, what is an H-index that would be appropriate for an assistant professor, an associate professor? It's a flawed index, but they're still indicators of research excellence. What are other things? Well, conference presentations, students as co-authors, impact factors for where your journal is. I just really like thinking about this entire endeavor from a latent variable framework. Yeah, I very much like the latent variable way that you thought about it, which is a natural thing for us. In fact, all of the standards are some somewhat latent in the end, and I think we would argue that that's the way they ought to be. You can demonstrate your research excellence. It can manifest itself in very different profiles, and I think at the end of the day, that is what we want. I have had candidates who are going up for promotion and tenure who might have 11 or 12 publications. I have had people going up who might have 30 publications. These are very different profiles. There's so many different elements to each of these that they really can't be compared directly. For example, someone who has 11 or 12 publications might be breaking entirely new ground within a discipline. A person who has 30 studies might be just simulating a bunch of stuff that other people have done and not necessarily contributing any new thought, only sort of sorting the bodies among things that other people have thought. That's not to say that's not valuable, but we really have to be able to be flexible in our thinking. And that latent variable, that research quality is something that manifests itself in different ways. And I really just think that's the way we want it. The trickier one is is grant pursuit Mm -hmm. and acquisition. The other rant I will give is, oh, universities just want you to get grants to line their pockets. 
I always <laughs> love that. Like there's some big university out there that collaborates with big tobacco and they're just <laughs> they're just trying to get, get the money. Because, you know, <laughs> if you want to make a lot of money, you definitely found a university. My favorite Richard Branson quote where he said he guarantees how to become a millionaire in two steps. Step one is become a billionaire, and step two is buy an airline. So if you really want to be big money, found a university. I think that's ridiculous. I think it's a ridiculous statement to say that universities just want to line their pockets with grants. What I would argue is getting a grant is not a requirement to do good research. I think that you can conduct an independent and novel program of research without seeking out funding to support that. Now, I would argue there are many, many advantages to having funding to support your work. I would argue there is some ethical obligation to not use your graduate students as free labor on your research Mm -hmm. projects because you're not pursuing grant support to provide them research assistantships and things like that. But whereas I think peer-reviewed publications are an absolute requirement. I think grant acquisition is trickier. Would you say that someone going up for associate professor with tenure at Carolina must have some evidence of funding, must have some evidence of trying to get funding, or none of the above? That's tricky because in the policies that I just read, there is no written criteria for getting a grant or pursuing a grant. And also, we are all expected to be part of interdisciplinary science, which now I've Mm. been told we've even outgrown that and it's transdisciplinary. I don't know if you got the memo on that or not. Wait, it was inter... It was was multidisciplinary, but then it became interdisciplinary. And now it's transdisciplinary. Back in the day... When I came up, it is, were you principal investigator on an NIH or NSF grant? Well, now they're co-principal investigators. They're co-investigator roles. You have team science. It gets very tricky to talk about, well, what does it mean to have a grant? So if you have somebody, especially from a quantitative perspective, who may be co-investigator on five different projects and is providing critical support for all five of those, is that getting their own grants, even though they're a co-I on it at 5 or 10% of their effort? So directly to your point, no, you are not required to get a grant or to try to get a grant to go up for promotion at Carolina. However, if you have no grant funding and you have never tried to get grant funding, that is a paragraph or two that is going to need to be addressed in the review report as to why that is not a problem. And what we're describing is the way it works at Carolina and to some extent works at Maryland as well. But we can't say that it's the same in your discipline. We can't say that it's the same at your institution. You might have a formal requirement that you do have involvement in grant projects. Obviously, you have to know that. I would say, though, that having served at both college and campus levels, there are very different cultures with regard to available funding that exists in different fields, the expectation of funding in different fields. And you're absolutely right that being part of team science is often the way to generate funding. And that's very different from the old school model of you will get that NSF grant yourself. Here at Maryland, people have to have a track record of attempting to get their own research funded, although they need not have been successful. And by the time someone is going up for full professor, it has to have reached fruition fairly substantially. There are many, many advantages to having grant funding to support your work. First, is that going to allow you to do work at a higher level than you would be otherwise. Maybe you get Mm -hmm. a course reduction and you're able to spend more time. You get some summer salary. You're able to support that. Does that allow you to compensate subjects if you're doing human research and not rely on subject pool of volunteers? You can expand your sampling design. And the one that really galls me is someone who says, well, my research doesn't need grant support and I shouldn't be punished for not having it. Oh, by the way, all of my graduate students are expected to work 20 hours a week in the lab to contribute Mm -hmm. to lab activities, but they're not paid. So graduate 
graduate students are doing a TA and there is a lab expectation that they work for free on top of that. And that I find appalling at times. Not everybody, if you're on the treadmill, don't curse at me. But I'm just (laughs) saying on average, I think that that is a troubling scenario. I agree. And the idea of the grant money is that it elevates the quality of work that you're able to do, and it elevates the culture around you, whether that's generating revenue for your program to be able to do more ambitious things, whether it is generating revenue to be able to support graduate students. It's not just that damn thing that you have to do. It's something that really does enrich the environment around you. If there are mentors around you, if there's a structure around you to help support you to get good at that, I think it's absolutely something that's valuable to get good at. Coming from a guy who does not write outlines for papers, who does not write outlines for podcast episodes, who kind of feels like, eh, I'll figure it out when I get into the paper as to what the form is. Writing a grant forces you to structure and hone and refine your research and your goals when you have to set out three aims and to say, what hypotheses are these testing from this theory? How is this going to move the field forward? What are the public health benefits? to the work that I'm doing here. I got to tell you, if you write an NIH grant application and then crack a beer and throw it in the fire and lean Mm. back and just watch (laughs) the pages curl up at the edges, that is a beneficial process to go through to force you to think about your work in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. I will even tell you that I have gotten to the end of writing a very, very detailed grant application The ultimate message to me being that I don't actually need this funding. I thought that I did. I realized that the honest answer was that my thinking was sufficiently fully formed that I could finish out this research without funding. There have been other times where I've written something where I'm just looking at the page going, I don't even know what the hell I want to do here. I'm meandering. I don't think my thoughts are really cogent enough to go asking for something because I'm not sure yet what that something is. It's an incredibly valuable process for sure. As you may have a passing awareness of, you and I are going to teach a class together this spring in measurement and scoring, the Mm. entire core of the idea for that class for me came out of a grant that I wrote half of and Mm -hmm. decided I wanted to do another simulation like I wanted to drill a hole in my forehead. (laughs) And I set it aside, and that's where Mm -hmm. the class came from. (laughs) You're dragging me down with you. I got to tell you, man, it's (laughs) playing trumpet on the back of the risers, and I'm going, and by God, you guys are going with me. So we've got research excellence. We have publications, citations, H-index, impact, conference presentations. I don't think we need to drill too much into that. It's being actively involved in your intellectual community. As you're going through this entire process of developing into the kind of scientist who you want to be, the most important word in my lexicon for this is programmatic. That is the systematic and integrated pursuit of a theme in your research. I tell my junior people, I want to be able to look at your CV and close it and say, okay, Ethan is a what? He does advanced measurement and scoring and longitudinal designs. Ethan is an expert in statistical models for causal inference. Whatever that is, you should be able to look at somebody's CV and to have a sense of who they are and what they do. And what you're saying is not uncontroversial. I said something similar to that in an early episode that we had last season, and there was some pushback from some people about that. The idea being that isn't there value in trying different things? Isn't there value in dabbling? And my response to that was there is value in that, but this might not be the time for that. You have to become known for something. You want the letter writers, for example, to be able to be familiar with what you do. Not that you did one paper that kind of was in a particular area. So as frustrating as that might seem to people, and even as antithetical as that might feel to being a member of an academic community, shiny object syndrome is not the thing to have when you're an assistant professor. And it's not only just wait till post-tenure and then you can chase all the laser pointers you want. My master made me this collar so that I may talk. Squirrel! 
there's some foundation of who you are as a scientist and how you contribute to the field, and then your individual projects are tethered to that. Are you ready to turn the page on research? So let's turn then to teaching. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay, and service. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So what kind of recommendations do you make junior (laughs) people? You're going to let it go? (laughs) You are not wrong. Yeah, I wish I were wrong. I would like to live in a world where the institution actually cared about high-quality teaching. I don't mean awards and recognitions and all of that. Basically, you just have to not suck. But if you suck... You have to have shown that you suck slightly less by the time you go up for tenure than you sucked when you first got here. The university, of course, would love to have wonderful teaching, but they do very little to nothing to be able to develop it. So at the end of the day, I think the practicality is they just want you not to be god-awful. Another thing I like about Carolina, and I know I say that a lot, but I do like it at Carolina, which is why I'm in my 21st year there. We really do value teaching, and we sincerely value teaching. But in the promotion process, it is secondary Mm -hmm. to research unambiguously. Pulling up my policy manual is let's formalize the language for what you just said. A demonstrated commitment to an achievement of teaching excellence, so another latent factor. As you noted Mm -hmm. earlier, it's not just classroom teaching, it's mentoring, advising. Mm -hmm. This is the sentence I really like. While its presence without service and research also being met will not bring tenure or promotion, its absence is sufficient to deny tenure or promotion. What that word salad means is if you're an exceptional teacher without research excellence, that's not sufficient Mm -hmm. to get you promoted. But if you are a horrible teacher with research excellence, we will show you the door. At the University of Maryland, the language used to be things about being above average until the university sort of realized it's actually impossible for us all to be above average. (laughs) So it's moving a bit more toward reaching standards. There are different evaluations that faculty go through, both, of course, those provided by the students, also those that are provided by peer assessments made by other faculty. And whether or not someone is an adequate teacher is more judged upon those kinds of scales now than whether or not a faculty member is average. And going back to a theme that we've touched on repeatedly, if you're in a department with a culture of support and a strong leadership team, this should not be an issue by the time you hit your sixth year. Because every year, someone should be looking at your teaching reviews and talking to you about this. Every year, if someone identifies an issue that they set you up with the Center for Faculty Excellence or they provide you supports, in my opinion, if you have an effective leadership team, these issues have been identified earlier in the process and attempts have been made to fix problems before they come up for the tenure review process itself. And if you don't have an effective leadership team, if you don't have someone that is providing you mentorship with regard to research, if you don't have someone who is looking out for the quality of teaching that you have, then you go get it yourself. I wish that weren't necessary at some institutions, but some are really more developed in terms of the support structure that they have. So rather than assuming because no one has talked to you about your teaching that everything must be going fine, you should actually ask someone to sit in on your class. I completely agree that it's on us as administrators to put all of the infrastructure into place, helping people to meet those particular goals, but not every program is set up that way. So I really, really encourage people not to deepen the mystery about whether or not you are meeting standards. Call people in and say, hey, would you mind just sitting in and seeing how it's going, telling me what you think I could change? As painful as it is watching videos of yourself teaching. (laughs) You won't even listen to old episodes of our podcast. (laughs) I don't like listening to myself right now. Do the hard thing, right? If you're not getting that stuff provided for you, seek it out. And don't anyone take this to mean that Greg and I don't value teaching. Indeed, this is one of the most important things to both of us. Thank you. But it is the case for promotion that, as you said in the holiday episode, don't suck. All right. 
teaching statistics. Don't suck. If you're going to teach statistics, <laughs> don't suck. All right? <laughs> and then we'll work on improving you later if you need to. The third one is service. Mm -hmm. Sometimes service, I feel like, is misunderstood a little bit. There is service to the department, service to the university, and service nationally. How I view it is, are you an active participant in your intellectual community? Are you involved in things? Are you helping? Do you help within your own area? Do you organize things? Are you on committees? Are you in the department involved in the administration of that? Now, as a junior person, nobody's going to put you in charge of anything, but are you learning the gig, right? Are you on maybe a curriculum committee as a new member? Are you on the colloquium committee to identify speakers? So those are all at department university levels. But then are you contributing to the field on a more national basis? Are you doing article reviews? Are you doing mm -hmm. reviews for conference presentations? Are you involved in a scientific society? At Carolina, we have a stated policy that we have minimal expectations for junior people in terms of service. You need to show <laughs> some kind of involvement, but the quid pro quo is, holy cow, are we going to hit you once you're tenured, right? Mm -hmm. Is that when you're promoted and you're an associate, there is now an expectation that you will be involved in aspects of the operation of the department as a whole. I think we're close, not exactly in the same place. I try to emphasize professional service a good bit more. I think that it's paving the way for the future. I also think it creates a lot of opportunities for people early on. What I want and what we require, I realize are two different things. I try to get our junior faculty involved in professional societies, certainly doing ad hoc reviewing. Those kinds of things, I think, bear their own fruit. I don't think it's to check a box. I think it's to make this person's presence known in the community that they want to have a career in. As a senior faculty member, I see it as my job to try to help facilitate those connections, to try to get the junior faculty member doing ad hoc reviews, to make some of the introductions at conferences, to help direct them towards some of those service opportunities. Ultimately, to be able to succeed in tenure, there has to have been some ad hoc reviewing. There has to be some involvement in national societies. And I personally really want to minimize the hit that comes after tenure. And maybe that's another conversation at some point. The world is different on the other side, but not different as you think. These are things you should be doing anyway. It's not checking yeah. off boxes. When you're part of a review process for a journal, you see what it's like as you prepare your own papers for that journal. When you're on a review group for grant review that you see how that works and what is valued and how to present your own work when you submit that grant. And also, this is maybe a Pollyanna part of me, but if you're going to publish a paper in a journal, you need to review for that journal. If you're going to mm -hmm. ask for grant fundings from an institute, you need to review for that institute. That's how the system works. It drives me nuts when people say, oh, I would never do grant review panel. Do you know how much work that is? It's like, I know exactly how much work that is because I'm on a grant review panel. That's right. The system fails if the people who participate in publishing and getting grants don't participate in the adjudication of submitted work. I would say there are a lot of other dimensions to this, maybe some unspoken aspects of the tenure promotion process, some cultural aspects of the tenure promotion process. But I want to return to something that I said earlier, and this has been a theme of conversations you and I have had, and that is that the institution is made up of largely very well-meaning people. Almost always, they are invested in your success. When you haven't been through the tenure process, it is very easy to look at it as this specter that is hanging over your head. Please, sir. We've done what you told us, so we'd like you to keep your promise to us. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. I totally get that. I have been there. It is easy to poke at it as a lot of boxes that you have to check, busy work that you have to do. 
But I will tell you, the more you become steeped in an environment of knowledge generation, knowledge dissemination, the more you will actually buy into a lot of these things. It's not that it's a perfect system, but it's a system that has evolved for reasons that people think that this is what it means to be part of a professional academic community. The frustrating parental kind of advice is that I swear when you are on the other side of it, you will understand it a lot better than you understand it when you are on this side of it. You will be frustrated by the review process. You might even say words from time to time like, how come the people who are evaluating me never had to meet the standards that I have to meet now. How is that fair? And the answer is that those people who are evaluating you are part of the reason that the institution has evolved to where it is. They helped it to evolve to where it is. So it is reasonable that those people are sitting in judgment of you. They have been through the things that you have not been through at a point in time other than you. So you are standing on their shoulders. They are generally fair people who would like to see you succeed. It is a largely fair process run by largely fair people who are highly, highly invested in your success. If there were one or two bigger ticket things that you tell your junior people as they're navigating these waters in preparation for promotion, what are they? Gather data, lots of data. What I mean by that is seek feedback routinely. Each year you should be getting evaluated. Each year you should be asking, how am I doing? If someone is not telling you how you're doing, you should be asking, how am I doing? You should be willing to learn in that environment, willing to adapt, willing to take the advice of mentors who might have wiser perspectives than yourself. Take that advice, take it as an opportunity to shape yourself more in an environment with which you currently have little experience. For me, it is about data, 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 always trying to gather information to help shape you into a better professional. One of my biggest recommendations that I know may seem silly to hear, especially when you're going through the process, but that is don't overthink it. I feel like there is a temptation to say, always do this, never do that. You need this many pubs in this paper. Write this paper because it'll get published faster than that paper so that it gets on your CV. Don't collaborate with that person because they won't be able to be a letter writer. Never write a book. People always say, don't write a book before tenure. Mm -hmm. You can write a book after <laughs> tenure. Well, coming from somebody who wrote a book before tenure, I can tell you that is not an accurate recommendation for somebody to make. Each and every one of us has some natural topology that we're going to fill. How we mm -hmm. do research, how we think about things, how we make contributions to the science. And I feel like you handcuff yourself if you try to behave in a way that you think is going to get promoted. You got to be who you are and do what you do. And then that is what is evaluated. Because, you know, Greg, it all goes back to Marlo Thomas. I assume we cued the music there. <laughs> I'll be honest, Craig. I don't have anything to add beyond Marlo Thomas. Who could? I will hum that for the rest <laughs> of the day. God help me. Mainly, I hope that as people out there might be looking ahead toward this particular important milestone, that some of the things that we've said will help them to think about the process that lay ahead. And repeating the caveat emptor we stated at the opening, your mileage may vary, right? <laughs> All of these things vary as a function mm -hmm. of institution, as a function of expectations in your home department. And who you are as a scientist, what you value and how you want to contribute to our intellectual community. What Greg and I talked about are very broad strokes drawing on our experiences and the institutions within which we're embedded, but your own experiences may be a little bit different. They may be very different. And we wish you luck as you move ahead. Reiterating Greg's point, with rare exception, institutions want you to succeed. Just realize that you were hired for a reason and you are amongst friends who are trying to make you a permanent member 
of the intellectual community. Absolutely. So thank you, everybody. Take care and stay safe. All right. Be well. Thanks, everyone. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for something to listen to while you wait for your vaccine shot, and please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter, we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other silly stuff. Finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch to impress all your friends, or in our case, friend, at RedBubble.com where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access and low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, where we are really hoping to make that final list of pardons. Quantitude is brought to you by Quantitude Anonymous, a new online platform for posting anonymous questions about all things quantitative. Quantitude Anonymous, or QAnon for short, offers an exciting new resource for researchers... Can't say that. Sweetie, I'm recording here. I don't think that means what you think it means. Oh, come on, it's funny. Yeah, no, no, not it, a good time. It is funny. Timing, Dad. Okay, no, I'm gonna go with it. Would you mind? I'm. No, ow, yeah, no, ow, no, 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 no. Ow, 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 ow. This is most definitely not NPR. It's funny!